it's kind of an older picture. What would you guess the year of that is based on the swim cap? Yeah, something. Yeah, so, yeah, 52. Corey, you're reading ahead. Good answer. <laughs> this is Florence Chadwick. She was a long-distance open-water swimmer that set a whole bunch of records around 1952, correct, back in her day. She was the first one to swim the English Channel both directions. She swam from England to France in like 13 hours. And then a year later, after a long break, she took a swim from France to England, and it took her 16 hours. That's a lot of swimming. In 52, as mentioned, she attempted to swim 26 miles between Catalina Island and the coastline of California. After about 15 hours of swimming, that's hard to imagine, but after 15 hours of swimming, this fog set in, right? This thick fog, and she began to panic. She began to question her ability. She began to doubt, can she do this? This fog was all around her, so she gave up after swimming for about another hour. And once she was safely in the boat, she realized that she was less than a mile from the coastline. Like Florence Chadwick, it seems like we as Christians today are just swimming in a thick, dense fog. We live in a world that's just gone mad. It's like we live in the days of Noah. A moral insanity is rampant throughout the earth. We live in a world which right is wrong and wrong is right. We live in a world which men are with men and women are with women. And we live in this insane, crazy world in which men are becoming women and women are becoming men. Yeah, whenever the world or a nation rejects God, it just goes mad. It loses its moral bearing and it loses its moral compass. And there's no other alternative but for that world to become just intolerable and insane. Colossians 2 is something we always need to keep in the forefront of our mind. And it says, Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. We, as Christians, are to be focused each day upon God and seeking first his kingdom and seeking first God's righteousness in our thoughts and our lives. We must always be thinking about the world to come, the world above, rather than the world in front of us. So I pray today as we walk through these first couple verses of 1 John chapter 3 that we're going to recognize, first and foremost, that this I know we know this, but let's just walk out even more assured, knowing this is not our home. This world is not our home. Yes, we're called to make disciples, and we're called to witness, and we're called to be part of the world, but not of the world. But we should never forget that we're really strangers and aliens walking around on earth. We're exiles here on earth. This is not our home. Our home is in another realm. Our home is in heaven above. We're simply passing through. And the Apostle John knew this. The Apostle John knew this. He knew Christians would get distracted and influenced by the world events. He knew that in all times a fog would come in and distract some people and get them off course. So in our day of this blatant just craziness and insanity, we turn to John to see what he says on the matter. And setting the stage just a little bit. Remember, John is the last living apostle at this time as he writes this. He's somewhere between 80 and 100 years old. And so that means he's been a follower of Christ for a very, very, very long time. He's the last one alive from Christ's inner circle that can literally close his eyes and picture his time with Jesus and hear 
the words that Jesus is saying. He's a man who watched Jesus perform countless miracles. And what John wants us to know this morning is this, is despite the evils in the world around us, we must remember a couple things. One, whose we are. Two, the effect of that, what that means in in an insane world. And three, the glorious future that awaits us. So let's dig in. Let's let's start here in chapter 3, verse 1, as John reminds us whose we are as he talks about the love of God. See how great a love the Father has given us that we would be called children of God, and in fact, we are. John begins by asking us to carefully take this in. So he says this. He says, see. Don't let this pass you by. Right? You've got to catch us. And it's kind of easy when we start talking about the love of God to kind of tune out a little bit, right? Because we've heard it. We've heard it a lot. We've, we, we've digested it. We understand it to some degree. But John is saying, hey, let's not just go on autopilot this morning, right? Let us see and stop. That's what he's saying. Stop, pause, meditate, reflect on what I'm about to say. And it It just strikes me amazingly that John, after all these years, is just still in amazement and astonishment over the love of God. The phrase after that, how great a, is actually translated, literally means in the Greek, of what country. So John is stressing God's love is foreign to our earthly experience. It comes from another realm. It's an out-of-this-world love. It doesn't originate here. It's different than anything in our world. It is from another country. It's purer. It's greater than any love we can find on this earth. See how great a love. As I mentioned, the focus on the love of God just amazed John his entire life. And if you think about it, he's got much to say about love in the Gospel of John, which we're studying on Sunday mornings with Rick. He's got much to say about love in these short little uh, books that he's writing, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And he's got a lot to say about love in Revelation in the Gospel of John. Everybody knows this, for example. What is the one verse that we all know and recite that centers on the love of God? It's John what? John 3, 16, right. For God so loved the world, he writes there. And here he writes, see how great a love. Yeah, he just tries, as he reflects on love, he tries as hard as humanly possible using language, which is what we have to use, to describe this indescribable love of God so that we can try to have it sink in. This incomprehensible love that he's shown to us, fallen sinners. In the next chapter, chapter 4 of 1 John, verses 8 through 10, we read this as he continues to focus on love. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was revealed in us, that God has sent his only son into the world, that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John is continually continually reminding us that God didn't just say I love you and have these words just kind of float out there, right? God acted and he demonstrated his love for us. He adopted us into his family. We're children of God. We're a child of God. And there's no greater love than what a parent has for their child. And really, John wants us to see that this is the testimony of the entirety of Scripture. The entirety of Scripture shows us that God has bestowed this great love 
on us, on you and on me. And you know we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. The fact is that God loves us not because of us, but in spite of us. Yet before the foundation of the world, God chose to set this redeeming love on each one of us here in this room today. Do you ever wonder why? Do you ever just step back and think, how? I mean, why? I mean, sometimes it doesn't make sense. For example, if we go to a wedding and there's a bride and a groom up there uh, getting married, and it seems most of the time that they're just made for each other, right? It's a perfect match, a perfect union. It'd be like the star quarterbacks up there and the star, the lead cheerleader, and they were just meant to be, and they started dating and fell in love. The prom king, the prom queen. It's just like marrying like. The wedding just seems to be moving forward, and everything seems to be going. I know it's a cheesy example, but it's like attracting like. What, what's extraordinary about John 3.1 here, about the love John's trying to explain to us is this, is that the wedding in heaven is one of opposites. It would be that handsome football quarterback star dating a homeless girl who's missing a few teeth, has head lice, is dirty, and is unwashed. Right? It's, there, there wouldn't be a really specific logical reason why that would be happening And so it is with us sometimes, I wonder. Standing at the head of the aisle is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's standing there dressed in perfect righteousness, perfect righteousness. And coming down the aisle is the bride the Father's chosen for the Son, the church, that's you and me. I mean, boy, we're marrying up, aren't we? I mean, we who were rebels and depraved and sinners and once enemies of God. It's God the Father who presents to the Son the most unlikely bride. So before we move on, we have to do what John says when he says, see, pause. Do you see here who loves you? It's the infinite, eternal God the Father. We are his children. I mean, of course, Jesus loves us. Of course, the Holy Spirit loves us. But John is specifically saying here, God the Father has bestowed this love on us. God who created the universe, who is just pouring out galaxies and galaxies of love on each and every one of us. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and work according to his purposes. And do you see why? Do you see why here? Do you see why he loves you? It's certainly not because anything in you, it's not anything in me, it's not anything we've done. It's because he chose to love us. And, and nothing you've ever done caused it, and nothing you could ever do will forfeit it. Do you see that this morning? Do you see how he loves you? That he delivered over his son to die for us on the cross. John says, stop, pause, reflect. Marvel at the love of the Father. And boy, shouldn't we? Man. That's our foundation because here comes the fog. This insane world that tries to distract us from the absolute truth found in the word of God. Our mission in this world. Let's read on. John says in the rest of this verse, For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. And the world here that he's referring to is the one I've referenced a couple times already this morning. This upside down, morally bankrupt, world gone mad of today. That's the world that doesn't know us. So what does that really mean, though? I mean, some in the world know us, right? I mean, they knew us enough back in the day to put us in the telephone book, right? 
I don't know if this isn't even printed anymore. Kids, I'll take this moment. Kids, this is what's called a telephone book. Okay. <laughs> this, in here you could find names of people, phone numbers, addresses, etc. Information. Now, where do we get that? Obviously, you know, Google, whatnot. But the world, so in a way, does know us to some degree. So what does that mean? When John says the world doesn't know us, he means this. It doesn't understand us. It doesn't, it doesn't perceive with understanding. It doesn't know us in the sense that the world is clueless about knowing our values, our priorities, and our beliefs. And the world just can't figure us Christians out. And it drives them crazy. We're a riddle to the spiritually blind world around us. And this causes them to constantly do what? To degrade us and belittle Christians. We see it every day in the news and elsewhere. We're, we're a mystery to them. We're, we're one huge question mark in their eyes that they cannot figure out. They don't understand what makes us tick. Right? Everything about us is different because this love from another country has come into our lives and it's molding us and it's shaping us and it's transforming us and now we're God's children with an eternal perspective our worldview is different hopefully our life purpose is different our motives are different as long as we're in this world again we must remember this is not our home think about it with me this morning the world can't understand why you Wake up early on a Sunday, like many other days of the week, to come here and worship. They can't understand why some in our congregation routinely travel over 20 miles to come worship with their brothers and sisters. They, they, can't, they don't understand that. They can't figure out why in the world you would give up your Sunday mornings to be right here instead of golfing, instead of going to the beach, instead of sitting, sipping coffee at home, like literally millions of other people right now. They can't figure that out, why you're here. They can't figure out why you would come in this building to sing as an act of worship. They don't get it. The world can't comprehend why. Why would you come listen to a guy speak for around 25 minutes or longer, if I don't pick up the pace here, right? and from a book that's 2,000 to 3,500 years old? You're, you're an enigma to them. You're a mystery to the world. They can't figure you out. What? They pass a plate and you take out your, your hard-earned money and you just give it away? Christians baffle the world. The world cannot understand why we do not support living together before marriage. That makes no sense to them why we don't support that. The world can't understand why you will only marry someone of the opposite sex, the opposite gender. Baffles them, confuses them, make no sense to them why we take that stand. The world does not understand why once you are married, you stay married. And you work it out. You work through your problems. You work through your trials. The world doesn't understand why someone would leave a great job to move somewhere else, to serve in a specific ministry capacity. That references Matthew 28, 19, by the way. But that process makes no sense, zero sense to the world when someone is called to do that. And they don't understand why some of you would give up your vacation, your hard-earned vacation, precious vacation, to go to a third world country, stay in a non-air-conditioned church, and build a house for a family you don't even know. That's incomprehensible to the world. John says that's just the way 
it is, and that's the way it's going to be. One could argue that the day the world figures you out is the day you become too much like the world. The day you make sense to an unbelieving world is the day you've become too worldly. The world just doesn't know us because we are children of God. And we will reach out in love and we will share the gospel here in Chatham to the best of our ability and around the world. But until they are born again, like Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, they just don't know us. And then John adds, here is the why. Here's the reason why. He adds, because the world did not know him. They walk around in this thick fog being blinded by the devil because the hymn, of course, refers to Jesus. They didn't know Christ, recognize Christ at his first coming, and they're not going to know us followers of Christ today. So what are the implications of this? Well, boy, there are many, right? Knowing that the world will never understand us, it makes sense to me that we should marry Christians, right? They don't, the world, a worldly person doesn't understand us. I think it affects implication of this is marriage. It underscores that we should love individuals in, in the world, even though they don't get us, we should still love them. There's plenty of scripture reference for that, and it means we're willing to sacrifice the world's ex- acceptance and, and face its rejection. But here's the big one to me that I thought of, the implication. And this is where you come in, because I love being here and worshiping with you on Sunday morning. We should cherish our time together with other believers, right? When we enter this building, we're with like-minded people. You all believe what I believe and love what I love. There's a depth of family here that we just don't get in this world that's gone mad. This is where we have our identity. This is where we belong. We have purpose as a follower of Christ. Out there, we're like salmon swimming upstream, right? Going against the world. Trying not to buy in, definitely not buying in, to the latest agenda that they're trying to shove down our throat. Rather, here, we are all pulling in the same direction. We're heading down the same narrow path. Right? So there's warmth and love because I know you and you know me. And what excites you regarding the kingdom of God generally excites me. And what excites me about the kingdom generally excites you. And one thing is for certain that should excite us all here today. And that is our glorious future that John mentions here in this next verse. Verse 2 of 1 John 3. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So now John turns his attention to the future and says, and it has not yet appeared as yet as to what we will be. So about our future, there are some, definitely some uncertain things. There's a sense of uncertainty about our future. We know some things for sure. We know where we will be. We will be in glory. Jesus is preparing a place for us in our Father's house. That is our destination. We do know that. But what will we be like? Right? How old will we be? Will we recognize each other in heaven? To me, we recognize each other on earth, and heaven's a much better place than earth, so it makes sense to me. Why wouldn't we be able to recognize people in heaven? What will we do? 
what will our bodies be like? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us a little clarity in some of these issues. But the mystery remains, what will we be like? I mean, we could do a whole sermon series on that alone. What John says here is all we really need to know at this time for this particular study as we wait for our final destination. When he says when that happens, we're going to be like Jesus. And that should be enough for us now that we'll be like Jesus. There's some certainties here that he mentions as he's driving towards that point that we'll be like Jesus. If you notice, it says that when he appears, that's a certainty. When we read this verse, we can know that that is going to happen. He will appear in the sky. Jesus is coming back for us. It says right there when he appears. Jesus himself mentioned that in the gospel of John that we're studying. John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so... I would have told you because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you also will be. Praise the Lord for that. He's coming back. He will appear and he's going to appear in order to take us back to heaven. And it'll be suddenly. It'll be suddenly. In Revelation, we, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me to reward each one as his work deserves. Secondly, in that verse, we notice a certainty. And John outlines kind of a cause and effect here in verse 2. The cause is the certainty is we'll see him. He will appear. We'll see him. And the effect is we'll be like him. In other words, we see him first. Because of that, we're going to be transformed more and more and more and more and more into his likeness. And the reason that John gives here for that is what I found super exciting in this verse. Why does this occur that we will be like him? John says it's because we will see him just as he is. We're not going to see a humble carpenter. Okay, We're not going to see a meek Messiah. And we're not going to see a suffering Savior. We're going to see him just as he is now, as he presently is. All right. King of king, Lord of lords, his hair is white as snow, his eyes flaming with fire. Out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword, his face shining like the sun. You know, later, this same John is writing the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. And he has a vision of this glorified Christ. He falls down on his face, almost dead, unconscious in the presence of the risen Lord. Yeah, on that day when he appears in the sky, we will see him returning as that final stained glass window there depicts in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, ruling and reigning in all of his power. That's going to be beautiful. And thirdly, verse 2 tells us that when that happens, we're going to be like him. What that fully means, I guess we're going to have to wait and see. But the big picture is, is that we will be transformed. A transformation process will occur. We will be like him. The perishable body will put on the imperishable. And we're going to need this transformation to be functional in our new home, which is heaven, 
It's how we get our strength to serve. This is how we will live forever because we will be like him, like Jesus, as John tells us this morning. Remember Jesus in his glorified body, right? He seemingly walked through walls to be with his apostles, right? On the road to Emmaus, he just, he just appears and he does what? He just disappears and then he's gone. He Suddenly he's there and then he's gone. So think of how we will be when we become like him, how we will travel through the new heavens and the new earth, the glorified body. I find that exciting. I find that exciting. I'll tell you, the older I get, the more exciting that becomes, right? I wake up in the morning, and I'm like a bowl of Rice Krispies. Snap, crackle, pop, right? So, yes, a new body sounds glorious. But you know what is even better than that? Better than getting rid of the snap and crackle and the pop? It's better than that is this change on the inside that will occur. This body of flesh that we live in, our sin nature that we fight against every day, that we battle against every day, will be removed. Romans 7 outlines this continual battle that we face on earth between flesh and the spirit. That will be no more in our glorified bodies. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that we don't have to battle this flesh anymore and sin? Our hearts and soul will just be freed up to worship and to serve the Lord who is worthy of that. An evil world gone crazy won't distract us. And a sinful fleshly body is not going to hinder us anymore in serving our beautiful, beautiful Lord. That's what's awaiting us. And it could come far sooner than any of us imagine, right? John felt it necessary to remind the first century church many years ago. And I think it's important for us this morning as well. Because we don't know when that day will come. The certainty is he will appear. But we don't know when that day will come. But we do know this. That right now, at this moment, we're closer, guys, to that day than anybody who's walked before us. Right? We are nearer and closer to the Lord's return than any generation before us. So there should be a heightened sense of awareness to that fact, and we should be ready for our Lord's return because he's coming back, and it will be, in the blink of an eye, it will be sudden. So John 3 kind of drives us towards uh, the third verse in John chapter 3, kind of drives us towards conclusion here, and that is that John says this, and everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself, and just as he is pure. John has a lot to say, and we don't nearly have enough time. He's got a lot to say in the following verses about behavior, and rightfully so. He calls us here to purify ourselves, recognizing everything we've talked about, whose we are, the love of God, our glorious future. He says, now purify yourself. It should cause us to examine our behavior, what we just read today. We are to flee immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. We are to buffet our bodies and make it our slaves, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27. We are to hide God's word in our heart, yet we sin against God, Psalm 119.11. We are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. The Bible sets the bar pretty high regarding our conduct. 
And God's not going to cut a side deal with me, or he's not going to cut a side deal with you to lower that bar. Which means we must really rely on the empowering of the Holy Spirit within us to fight the good fight. We must be with the Father daily as we become more like Jesus. And of course, we will never live perfectly, not in this world, but nevertheless, right, knowing that this truth about the return of Christ should have a profound effect on our behavior, and it should challenge us, prompt us with the desire to change, to be more like him, to purify ourselves, purify our eyes. What are we looking at? Purify our minds. Purify our ears. Purify our feet. Where are we going? Purify our tongue. What's coming out of it? From our heart to our feet, let's focus on purifying ourselves before the Lord behavior. I have to close with this verse because I love it, and I know you do too. The rubber meets the road right here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. As we come to the Lord's table, let's be ready for the Lord's return. Let's be ready to go. We can't be unprepared. We can't be tangled up in this world around us in the world affairs. Let's rejoice and be happy because the Lord, whether we're alive or dead, he's not going to leave us in the stink pot of a world. Right? He's coming back for us, and the best is yet to come. We have this glorious, glorious, glorious future. There's a mansion above waiting for us, and the best part aren't the streets of gold. The best part is that the Lord will be there with us. We will be in the presence of God. Our reward is great, and that alone is motivation to behave in this pure manner to the absolute best of our ability. Jesus he knows what we're going through. He's everywhere. He sees what's happening. He knows what we're going through on earth. He sees the sacrifices we make for his name's sake. He sees the world attacking Christians and mocking our worship of him. He knows. You need to be reminded, and so do I, that when he comes back, he will reward his faithful servants. So we should repent. We should confess our sins before God. We should come to the table now in a worthy manner of what lies before us, what these symbols represent. We should come with repentant hearts, confessing our sins, humbling ourselves, pledging to do a 180 and turn away from areas that dishonor the Lord because there's not one of us sitting here that is without sin. Yes, the trumpet will sound and the Lord will descend. The fog is going to lift. He's coming, could be at any moment even before we leave here today. We're promised that we, when we confess our sins, he will forgive them. So, so let's keep our eyes on Jesus this week and now as we enter this time of communion together.